This morning we will be continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be reading Luke chapter 4, the verses 14 to 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And you'll be able to find that on page 1183 of your Pew Bible. So for those of you who were here the last little while, you may remember that prior to this, Jesus has been baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. And then after that, he went out into the desert to be tempted. And now we come to the verses of our passage, Luke 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when, he when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But none of them, to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naam and the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. We'll be paying a special, a special attention to verse 21 today. He began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. 
Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine hearing these words. If I personally read a piece of scripture like that and said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, you would definitely raise your eyebrows, wouldn't you? And with good reason. I'm a simple pastor of a small town which is on the outskirts of the Canadian Reformed community in southern Ontario, taking messianic words as my own. Now consider how these startling words would have felt to the people in Jesus' community. Here was a man whom they knew, a man who was a former carpenter and has been for the last few decades and who now left home and has come back as a rabbi. Now he comes back and he says this. What would be your reaction? These are the opening words of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. He makes a remarkable claim. How are they to take it? Today we'll look at this passage and more specifically our text under the following theme. As his first act, Christ proclaims liberty. And we'll see first what he's saying and secondly how the people react. Now, as we come into our setting here, it it quickly becomes evident that Nazareth is not the first stop of Jesus as he comes out of the desert, comes out of his temptations, and begins to preach in Galilee. We read in verse 23, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here. What is this that they've heard he's accomplished there? The text doesn't tell us, nor does Luke the author of this gospel. But it does make it clear that he's not here in Nazareth to give his very first address. He's been preaching around Galilee. The region's gossip mills are are churning out information about him, and 4 verse 15 explains why. He was teaching in their synagogues, and people were very impressed. It says that he was glorified or praised by all. However, Although he is not completely new to the region, he is in the first stages of his ministry here. And that means that he has a special message for the people of Galilee and the people of Nazareth. He speaks of repentance later, and he's coming out of a setting where John was preaching to all the people to repent, and we do see this theme coming back again throughout the Gospel of Luke, but that's not the foot that Jesus begins his ministry on. That's not his first focus in our passage. Now, this isn't to say that he didn't preach repentance during this time, but it forces us to look, okay, what exactly is Jesus preaching about? What does the author of the Gospel of Luke, what does Luke, the physician, want to draw our attention to in the first stages of Jesus' ministry? Jesus is preaching about Jesus. And this becomes very evident in the scripture passage that he chooses. First we read, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. This was his normal pattern. When he came to a place to visit, he did what every visiting rabbi would do. He spent some time in their synagogues, their place of worship on the Sabbath day, and he read the scriptures 
and taught. By the way, as a side note, you might find some people who say, where does it say I have to go to any church? Can't I be part of the universal church without being part of a physical church? Well, that doesn't pan out for a whole lot of reasons, but one of them can be found here. Do you want to be like Christ? Christ went to worship with a body of believers on the day of rest, as was his custom. He didn't skip it. He didn't miss out because he didn't feel like it. It was important to him. It was important to him. And you can ask such a person, if it was important to Jesus Christ, shouldn't it be important to you as an image bearer of Christ? As an ambassador of Christ? But that being said, our focus here is on what Christ was preaching about. So what is he preaching about? He stood up to read as was the custom of the day. You read, you read the scriptures and then you stand out of respect. You go to teach the people. And then sitting down was a sign to everyone that you're going to speak. That you're going to teach them what that passage that you read talks about. Jesus stands up to read and he chooses a passage from Isaiah. Specifically, he chose the passage where Isaiah describes an anointing by the Spirit of the Lord. The interesting thing about the passage that Jesus chooses is that it would have been one that was familiar to the Jewish people. Now some of them may have thought that it referred to Isaiah himself, but considering the context of who he was preaching about, this would have been unusual and unexpected for him to do so. Because we find that repeatedly Isaiah has been speaking about the servant of the Lord. And only the servant is on the receiving end of such elevated language in the book of Isaiah, never Isaiah himself. The servant of the Lord was a special character who was spoken of with much delight by the prophet Isaiah. He was the one who would bring salvation to the people. And he was highly regarded by Isaiah. As that's the case, it would be surprising if he spoke so highly of himself and took upon himself the attributes that he earlier gave to the one he described as the coming one, the servant of the Lord. The fact that Jesus stands up and reads this passage and describes it as being fulfilled in himself makes it abundantly clear who it was for. More than that, it also speaks volumes about the kind of person Jesus was and about the kind of ministry he'd carry out. He was the servant, the one in whom the Lord delights in Isaiah 42, the one who will be a light to the Gentiles in Isaiah 49, and the one who would suffer on behalf of the people because of their sins in Isaiah 53. Jesus was saying in reading this passage and sitting down and saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was saying, I am that servant. I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. Having said that he is the servant, our Lord is making four statements. First, he's stating that the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Now, there's no question about that. 
For those of you who are here, you already saw in our series what happened earlier in the Gospel of Luke, that the Spirit of the Lord descended on him in the form of the dove after John baptized him. Jesus is saying, this marks me for all of you to recognize me as who I am. John's preaching and his baptisms weren't things which were done in private. The whole countryside could attest to the fact that his anointing was a divine anointing. Second, our Lord is preaching the gospel to them. God has sent his Messiah into the world in order to declare the good news to them. What is that good news? That good news is that there's a great divide between God and man. That they are caught in the grip of their own sin. They're held captive. That they cannot deliver themselves. But God has taken the initiative. And God has moved to deliver them himself. God cares about his people. He's not a silent God. He's on the move. More than that, he's preaching the gospel to the poor. This is pretty much a summary of Jesus' entire ministry. He's not coming exclusively for those who are powerful in the world, but he's coming to fulfill his promises to provide for those who are in need, to provide for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Beloved, we should keep this in mind in our day-to-day lives. Certainly, this doesn't mean that we are that those who are well off among us physically, emotionally, and financially, that we ought to ignore them. But it does mean that we should not show partiality to them. Do you reach out with the healing salve of the gospel to those who are in need in your own church, family? Do you look for those who are discouraged, who are downcast, to give them that gospel hope? The next four phrases which Jesus uses make a third statement gathered together that can be summarized under the final line of the four. The brokenhearted, those who are captives to sin, to demon possession and myriads of other things, those who are blind, whether physically or spiritually, all of those will be set at liberty. All of them will be delivered from oppression in this new era that Jesus brings forward. This is the result of the gospel hope which Jesus promises to his people. When God brings salvation, he brings healing with it. He brings freedom from all sorts of slavery with it, through the servant, through the person of Jesus Christ. But you'll notice that that healing and liberation is all within the context of the proclamation of the gospel, the good news. The fact that everything is going to be set right between God and man through Jesus Christ. You'll notice that whenever the Lord and the apostles do miracles and other good works, it's always within the framework of the good news. Because physical liberation, being set free from disease, being crippled, being enslaved, is always a picture of the freedom from sin that we get in Jesus Christ. Now, there are those who are part of the theological movement described as liberation theology, which turns this on its head. They argue that Jesus Christ came to liberate, and so that should be our focus. 
It doesn't matter as much if we preach the gospel as long as we live the gospel personally and set people free from the effects of sin. We don't actually have to necessarily share the gospel directly with them. As that's the case, they're willing to work with many companies which don't share the gospel. But Jesus is teaching something else here. He's teaching that freedom from other things is only a picture of the greater freedom found in him. Freedom from sin. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't give money to such organizations or volunteer for those organizations. But it does mean that in general, we should be intentional in our donation and our mission work. Are our funds going to advance the kingdom? Are the organizations that we're working in and that we're donating to using physical freedom as a picture of the freedom from sin that we get in Jesus Christ and using that to direct the people to the one who can truly set them free? Jesus himself makes this principle very clear throughout his ministry. Take, for example, the disease of leprosy in the Old Testament. The disease that he speaks about later on in his sermon. It was a living death. This was a disease that really enslaved people. Boys and girls, imagine that you are a leper in the Old Testament. Anything that you touched would be considered unclean. You wouldn't be allowed to give your mom and dad a hug because they were they would become unclean because of you. You'd be forced to live outside of town, either by yourself or in a community with other people who are lepers, just so that no one would accidentally become unclean through contact with you. And we read in Leviticus 13, verse 45, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, this means let their hair be really messy, and cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. You would pretty much be considered a walking dead person. You would be a real slave to your disease. You would be oppressed. Now, why were lepers treated in such a way? If you were a leper, why would you be treated in such a way? For two reasons. The first was so that they wouldn't accidentally make other people unclean. And that's a very practical reason. But that wasn't the only reason. The second reason was to remind people of how bad sin really was. Do you understand this, boys and girls? God wanted to teach his people that sin was really bad. It makes you a walking dead man. And it can not only touch and ruin your life, but it can touch and ruin the lives of those who are around you too. Sin was contagious, meaning it was catching. Because your sin causes all kinds of hurt and pain to those around you and can sometimes cause them to respond in ways that hurt other people, that are sinful to other people. In that way, sin becomes a slave master. It can lead you to live already in this life with a taste of that hellish agony every moment of the day. 
and to show how incredibly dangerous it is to have sin in your life, people with leprosy were sent outside of the camp as a living picture that sin needs to be cut off from our lives and sin needs to be pushed away outside of our lives. But this also meant for the person who has the disease that they were a living picture of this. It meant that leprosy was a slave master for them, telling them where they could go and where they could spend time and who they could spend time with, telling them that they wouldn't be allowed to go inside the cities, that they'd be forced to live away from others. It controlled their whole lives and it ruined them. Now imagine for a moment coming to Jesus Christ as a person with leprosy being a slave for years to this picture of sin. We read about that at the beginning of Matthew 8. A leper came and he worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and he touched him. And he said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He touched him. The beauty of this moment, beloved, should not be lost on you. This was what epitomized the servant of Isaiah. That is to say, this is the total and the supreme example of what Jesus came to do on this earth as the servant. He came not to serve, but to be, he came not to be served, but to serve. He came to take our sin upon himself and to make us clean. He came with this action as a word picture of exactly what was to happen to the people he was proclaiming the good news to. Touching the man, this man would not have been touched in a very, very long time, especially not in a way, in the way that Jesus Christ had touched him. At the very first human touch that he felt again, he could feel the compassion of his Lord and our Lord, our older brother and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ wasn't made unclean by the touch. Instead, by symbolically taking his uncleanness on himself, he made that man clean. He released him from his enslavement to leprosy. And his releasing him from slavery to leprosy carried much more weight. It was a picture of this release from sin that could be found in Jesus Christ. And that's the fourth thing that Jesus declares, the fourth statement that he makes, that he's coming to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. By his miracles, by his actions, Jesus was proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He was proclaiming a new era, a new age in which God would pour out His grace in a special way. He is going from gospel freedom to talk about liberation, physical liberation, and then from physical things back to the gospel again in this passage from Isaiah. That year of the Lord's favor that He closes with, that acceptable year, is what ushered in When Jesus suffers, dies on the cross, is resurrected, and goes up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father for the sake of his people. 
This is the exact acceptable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1 to 2, where he says, We then, as workers together with Jesus Christ, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This age will come to an end. This era will come to an end. And since no one knows the day or moment, we need to take it seriously and look to Jesus Christ for our freedom now. At this moment, however, the moment that Jesus comes in our passage, we, and begins to preach, from this moment on, we can still take hold of the benefits of Christ by faith. We can still receive liberation from the oppression of sin. This release from slavery begins with Jesus Christ. And this freedom was pointed to by his miracles. That was what he wanted the people of his hometown to recognize. But sadly, they could not accept what he had to say. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They could not accept it. There's a saying made popular by the New Testament, but which goes back to even earlier times that Jesus quotes here. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. You may not be a prophet, but have you experienced this? Going back to the place that you grew up in, when everyone knew you from the time that you were you're tiny, and they built up a picture in their own minds of who you are. It might not even be a correct picture, but that's the picture that they have and it won't be shaken from their minds. This was a saying which was even true of our Lord Jesus Christ. The people of Nazareth had in their minds put him into a box and they couldn't picture him outside of that. And because of their own mental picture of what Jesus was like, instead of going to the Bible and recognizing him in this prophecy of Isaiah, submitting to him as a servant of Isaiah, the Messiah, who was anointed by God to bring the good news to them and to live and to die as a sacrifice that that good news required, they took offense at him. Now, first they marveled. It wasn't that they were impressed by what he is saying. They figured they had him pigeonholed. But they, they marveled because they were impressed that he was Joseph's son, and he was talking like this. He was the carpenter, and he was speaking in this way. Some suggest that the reference to him being Joseph's son might even be a mocking one to remind each other that the fact that he was indeed Joseph's son might be called into question. It would be surprising if they became this hostile right away, but it's very possible. They marveled in the same way that you would marvel if one of our own Owen Sound boys came back as the Prime Minister of Canada. Look around you at some of them. You would marvel. It's not the fact that it's impossible that it could happen. It's just that it's incredible to look at someone in our circles and to think that they could get to such a position. And because they felt that they had a personal connection with him, they didn't care so much about what he had to say, but they wanted him to do stuff for them. 
They wanted him to do miracles for their benefit. You've got this power. Now do it for us. Put it on display. But what he had to say, they didn't need that. They felt they already knew everything about him, and they didn't need any lectures from him on what to believe. It grieves Jesus that they respond in this way. The people that you grow up with can often be the ones that you love the most dearly. The mechanic who works on your snowmobiles. The farmer who helps out on your dad's farm when he was laid up sick for a while. The mom who fed you and listened to your stories when you went over to, the friend's house, to a friend's house. The people who helped you clean up and renovate your first fixer-upper house. It grieved Jesus that these kinds of people who were close to him, the people that he cared about, who knew him from when he was a young boy, would reject his message and would only want to see him do interesting things for them. Don't you understand, he says, that all these miracles that you want me to perform were meant to point you to who I am and what my task is here. They were bracketed. First, his proclamation of the gospel. Then all those miracles that he speaks about finished by this is pointing to the year of the Lord's favor. It's bracketed within that, the message that he wants to bring. And then he compares their stubbornness and their wickedness to their ref- and their refusal to listen to Israel in the days of Elijah and Elisha. To understand how bad this comparison is, you only need to remember who was king at the time. Ahab, one of the most wicked kings of his age, who bent to every whim of his equally evil wife Jezebel. This was a bad time for the people. As they all went after the Baals, and the Lord only preserved for himself 7,000 in the entire nation who had not bent the knee to a false god during that time. But more than that, he adds another picture to it for them. I tell you truly, he says, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but none of them was Elijah sent to except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow outside of Israel. And many lepers were in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile outside of Israel. It says they would not accept the gospel, they would not respond in faith, and so they didn't receive any benefits except the people who came from outside and did respond. It's at this point that their marveling turns into rage. What? This proud young carpenter goes and gets an education only to come back and compare us to the most wicked people in our history? You, Jesus, are saying that God will pass us by only because we don't think much of you? They didn't benefit from the healing that was symbolic of the healing from sin. They didn't benefit from the bringing back from walking death to life that the gospel brings because they were enraged by the picture that he brought. They even bring Jesus to the top of a cliff to throw him off. All because they could not accept his words. Today, 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And here we already see the shadow of the cross right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Enraged Jews who are passed by. Enraged Jews who try to kill Jesus all because they cannot grasp what Jesus Christ's liberation looks like. The freedom that he brings looks like. And we see, because it isn't his time yet, that God parts the crowd. The crowd parts and Jesus passes through them. Beloved brothers and sisters, today you have this very same gospel message put out before you. You have the freedom that is offered from the living, walking death and slavery that sin keeps you in. Some of you may think you know Jesus. You know what he offers. Maybe you do know a little bit of what he offers. But don't put him into a box. Don't limit him. Or you'll find yourself taking offense at him and his words, especially when people come to your house and open the gospel with you. Today, this gospel, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus Christ has proclaimed liberty to you, freedom within him. He brings the gospel. And now, outside of him, you are blind. But in him, you'll be able to see. Outside of him, you were covered in the leprosy of sin. And in him, you are made clean. Outside of him, you are bound with the chains of slavery. And in him, you are set free to live as a servant of Christ. As a son of God. And as a younger brother to him. Open his word and discover what he has to say. Put aside what you think he says and sit down, really read, really listen. Open your heart and your mind and look critically at your life in connection with the word of God. But more than that, use this time in God's word to direct your heart to him in faith, him who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Psalm 103, verses 3 to 4. Let every moment in which you experience healing be a reminder to you of the greater healing that Jesus Christ brings. Jesus can bring you healing and he will bring you healing. He can bring you freedom and he will. He can redeem your life from the pit and he does. If you look to him in faith, he guarantees it. You can count on it in this life or in the next. The liberty that he brings is For you, today, this is fulfilled within your hearing. Amen.